this morning, um, I'm going to start off a little strange. I'm going to start off in a, a scripture that you guys really are familiar with, um, one that you could probably get to very easy, especially if you don't like going to the Old Testament, and that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We see that God displays his power in the very beginning of time, probably, not probably, before we even existed, okay? In Genesis, it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and guess what? There was light. Such is the power of God. He speaks and is created. He speaks, it is done. He speaks and it is so. This morning, we return to our series in the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 12, and it begins with the apostle James is murdered, okay? The apostle Peter is in prison and Herod is in control. But by the time Acts 12 ends, James will be in heaven, Peter will be free, and Herod, you, you, you heard that little description of how he died, uh, eaten by worms, to be more exact, to be more exact, and the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to go out into the world. You can't stop it. You just can't. Luke here is showing us the gospel is unstoppable. So, and so, an important, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> And so, an omnipotent, almighty, and powerful God will have his way. Nothing and no one can stop him from accomplishing his purposes and even, even altering his plans. As believers, we know that's true, but we often forget that. We know it's true. We know God is in control. We know he's sovereign. But when things are there confronting us, sometimes we forget that. When evil appears to be winning, and when the righteous suffer, we tend to forget that God is in control. James and John had been close. They had worked together in their father's fishing business. They had spent three years in close contact with Jesus. I imagine they had hopes and dreams of how God would use them in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. But now, James was suddenly gone, John was probably left wondering, and oftentimes we're left wondering when things happen, why? I admit it, sometimes I, I do wonder why. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, even as I come to you in prayer now, I ask that you teach me to pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. I'm so aware of how shallow my prayer life can be at times and how ineffective I can feel in prayer, in prayer, times of prayer, Lord. I pray as the Apostle Paul prayed, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your people. Lord, may we look to you and your strength and seek your face always. Amen. So it starts. My main point today, the church, the body of Christ, is established. She, we, the church, will keep growing 
until the bridegroom comes. It's going to keep happening until the bridegroom returns. No weapon formed against us, the body of Christ, the church, no weapon formed against us will prevail. You must, you must believe that. There's no weapon formed against us that will prevail. So how do we know and live this truth? Our confidence in this is in the Holy Spirit's confirmation in our hearts, in our souls, that his word is truth, his word is life, that God is almighty and that he is sovereign over all. So let's do a brief review for, uh, over what we've gone over the last couple of weeks, okay? In, the Acts, in Acts 10, the apostle Peter had preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family and friends in Caesarea. All who heard Peter, all who heard Peter's message of salvation in Christ had come to saving faith. But Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and when Peter returned to Jerusalem, he was immediately accused of breaking Jewish law by associating with Gentiles. Peter defended himself and said that God had made it clear to him that the gospel and salvation in Christ was for the Gentiles as well. In Acts 10, verses 34 to 36, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to the sons of Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In verse 11 through 18, when they finished, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, that is, when they finished, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, the Gentiles also, to the Gentiles also, God has granted, granted repentance and leads them to life. In the rest of Acts 11, the new Gentile Christians established the church in Antioch. They told people about their Lord and Savior. They understood what the gospel is. They extended grace to all people everywhere. They were led by the example of godly pastors and elders. They, they dedicated themselves to preaching and teaching God's word. They gave from their hearts, trusting God to meet their own needs. And Acts 11.21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them. Barnabas brought soul from Tarsus, and two of them be began teaching in the church of Antioch. Saul would soon become known as the Gentile, by the Gentile name, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right, <laughs> I was going to have to reverse it. He would soon be known by the Gentile name of Paul. And in verse 26, Luke tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and that begins where we're at this morning, Acts 12, where God is sovereign and almighty. God is almighty. He's sovereign. That is the first thing that we need to grasp. Although God is almighty, he does not always prevent evil from happening, such as the untimely death of some of his devoted servants, like James, like Peter, okay? It is the year 44 AD, and the, sh the scene shifts from Antioch now to Jerusalem. Um, and let's read this passage, um, <clears throat> verses uh, 1 through 4. About that time, Herod the king 
laid violent hands on some who had belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. As we begin in the chapter, we see a marked contrast between the love of the racially mixed church in Antioch for the famine-afflicted Jewish church in Judea, which was in uh, chapter 11, and the hatred of Herod and the Jews of Jerusalem to the church, the Christian church. In the first part, John's brother, the apostle James, is executed by Herod. This is not the Herod Ant Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded and before whom Jesus was tried. This Herod is Agrippa I, one of, one of the Herod's, one of Herod's great, Herod the Great's grandsons. Well, say that twice. Herod the Great was the one who had, been, who had the infant slaughtered in Jerusalem when Jesus was born, okay? So there's a lot of Herods, and these guys are all wicked, okay? All the Herods, okay? In Acts chapter 26, Paul would stand trial before yet another Herod, Herod Agrippa II. This Herod was not well known or liked by Caesar. Therefore, he did what he could to please the Jews in Palestine because he didn't want the news of any unrest to go back to Rome. One commentary says this about Herod. He was quintessentially a quintessential politician who, when in Rome, lived like the Romans, and when in Palestine, knew how to court the Jews. He observed the Jewish feasts and sacrifices. He used his influence to keep Caligula from erecting a statue of himself as God in the Jewish temple. He helped the Jews of Alexandria receive more humane treatment. He moved the seat of government from Caesarea to Jerusalem and had begun reconstruction of the city's northern wall. He knew how to keep Rome happy and how to keep the Jews happy. He viewed the Jewish Christians as disruptive. He didn't want this upstart sect to disturb the peace and he had, that he had worked so hard to establish. One of the things that greatly pleased the Jews was the persecution of Christians. It, it, it's sad, but it's true. And we know that to be true these days, and I'm not going to get into that. So for what we purely what was purely political reasons, Herod had James, the leader of the church at the time, in Jerusalem, executed. With that, James became the first of the 12 apostles, okay? He became the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. And you're thinking, wasn't Peter martyred? Well, Peter wasn't one of the apostles. I wanted to make that point, okay? I'm sorry? Stephen, I'm sorry. Did I say Peter? I met Stephen. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> the response from the Jews was a great encouragement to Herod. He had Peter arrested right after Passover and, and during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was that time of the year when many multitudes of Jews were in Jerusalem and Peter's arrest would be seen by all. But Herod remembered that Peter and John had escaped from prison before, and that was in Acts 5. Um, in addition to that, there were two guards chained to him, to Peter, and two more right outside his cell door so that he had placed 
what, what we might be called maximum security. Okay, he, there was a total of about 16 guards watching over Peter and, and short proximity. So you can see the picture. So we see mangled together the wickedness of an evil tyrant and the sovereignty of God who allowed this tyrant to operate, but operate on a leash. We would be greatly mistaken if we thought that somehow God could not prevent Herod and, his, and this evil deed. As David says, why are the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord scoffs at them, one, one uh, translation says. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. No wicked act, not even the slaughter of the righteous, takes place apart from the sovereign will of God. All the wickedness that you see happening, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. God is still in control. There are a couple practical lessons that we should draw from this. As difficult as it is, we need to view death from God's eternal perspective. The songs that we sung this morning caused us to focus on that, the eternity, eternity with God, that we on this earth are destined for eternity. The pains and the struggles, they are short-lived. We are destined for eternity with God. It seems remarkable that the death of this great man, James, is passed over in a brief sentence. Stephen, the first martyr, got long chapter on his death, like I said before. He wasn't even one of the apostles. James on the inner circle and the first apostle to die doesn't even get a decent obituary, some would think, okay? It, it just doesn't seem right sometimes. But the, but the seemingly wrongfulness of it seems from our temporal perspective. James was welcomed into heaven by Jesus with the victor's crown in the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is why we battle on for those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You kept the faith. Absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me. Think of all the ways uh, that, that his, um, his relatives, his people suffered, okay? Passing, they viewed James passing from, from this life on earth. He leaves those who know him in sorrow and sadness. But now, James, but how is James passing from this life viewed from heaven? In their sorrow and sadness, is there sorrow and, and sadness in heaven? Of course not. And contrary, there is rejoicing, gladness when one of us goes home. The angels and the saints rejoice when one of us comes home. Our belief and trust in sovereign God will comfort us as nothing else can do. No death catches him off guard because God is always in control. You're going to keep hearing that tonight, today, this morning. God is always in control, which leads to the next point. God delivers according to his will. Not my will, not your will. God delivers. God does things. God acts according to his will. Since God is almighty, he can easily deliver his servants from humanely impossible situation if he wills. 
and that's uh, verses 12, I mean chapter 12, verses 5 through 19. In the second part of the morning message, <clears throat> Peter escapes from prison. In human terms, his escape would have been impossible, but we're talking about God Almighty here. All things are possible with our God. Again, maybe Herod had heard from the Jewish leaders how Peter and John had mysteriously escaped from custody a few years before. He wanted to make sure that this did not happen this time. So he assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him around the clock, like I said before. Peter is chained to two, he's chained to two soldiers surrounded by 16 others. But in verse 7, one of God's holy angels appeared in the cell, and Peter's chains simply fell off. And in verse 10, the prison iron gates opened all by themselves, just like the automatic doors at Walmart. That's how it happened back then, okay, all by themselves. When the angel's job is done, he's gone. Peter comes to his senses, thinking he was dreaming, and he heads to Mary. John Mark's mother's house. The disciples have been meeting in her home, praying for his release. In Acts 12, 13 through 15, we read, and when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the front gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. Let me ask you a question. Are you surprised, be honest with yourself, you don't have to, it's rhetorical. Are you surprised when God answers your prayers? Sometimes I am, I really am. Because I know sometimes my prayers are selfish or they're, yeah, they're just selfish. <laughs> okay. Um, in Acts 12, the apostles, they did believe. But like us, they still needed help in, with their unbelief. Peter is miraculously re, uh, released from prison. And once more, God's power is on display for all to see. But why is he released? Does God need Peter? Does God need me? Does God need you? You know the answer to that. Not necessarily. God doesn't need anyone or anything. You gotta, you gotta know this, you have to know this. You're not special, I'm not special. God doesn't need us. We're only special in his eyes because of his son Jesus redeeming us, okay? We are the most dependent upon God. It is not when we are totally helpless. Is it not when we are totally helpless? When are we, the, when we are most likely to pray fervently for what it is that we want, when we're at that desperate state, is it not when we are totally desperate and helpless sometimes that we seek out God. God is most glorified, let me make sure I didn't, God is most glorified when we are the most helpless and totally dependent upon him. Peter's deliverance is a picture of how God saves sinners. Probably Charles Wesley had this scene in mind when he wrote the verse in this great hymn, and can it be? And this is the verse, I almost felt like saying it, but I'm not. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. Oh, no, no, no. Was free. I rose, went forth, 
and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I threw that last part in. I just couldn't help it. God often waits until the 11th hour to deliver us so that we will be motivated to pray. There is nothing like an 11th hour crisis to get us praying as we should be praying the rest of the time. Uh, I often, I've often given this example here, but this example of prayer for me was what changed my view of prayer. It changed my view of the sovereignty of God when it comes to prayer. And I want to stay on cue here. Um, it was at the hospital in San Francisco. My daughter was dying, waiting for a liver, which didn't look like it was coming. And I remembered the desperation of prayer, the, the absolute feeling of weakness and just like my inability to do anything. It just, it's, it came upon me that I was nothing. Here I could not save someone I loved the most. And it, it was overwhelming. And that's when, that's when it, 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 it happened for me. On the bathroom floor in a San Francisco hotel, I realized that I had nothing but God. He was the only one I could call out to. He was the only one I could pray to. There was nothing I can do. That changed my view of prayer. It made me, at that time, realize that God, and I've said this before, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Right now, my heart is failing. My soul is failing. Come rescue me. Come save my soul so I don't doubt, so I don't stray away from you. You are my sanctuary. Those, that's the prayer that, that we need, realizing that God is all that we have. Um, when we are most likely to pray fervently for whatever it is, it is in our time of need, of desperate need that we pray. And when we pray, we don't even know what we're praying sometimes, do we? The Spirit of God takes over because he knows our needs. Um, I don't think I've ever prayed. Sadly enough, I don't think I've ever prayed like that since, you know, not even when I was laying in bed in the hospital with COVID, maybe because I was too weak, too tired, but I thank God that you guys were praying. But what a responsibility, what a privilege we have to go before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our creator, our maker, and he hears us. He doesn't give us everything we want, when we want, how we want, but he provides whatever his answer is according to his will and his time. Let's not forget that, church. In Acts 12, the apostles did believe, but like us, they still needed help with their unbelief. Peter is miraculously released from prison, and once more, God's power is on. I have a feeling I said this already. I did. 
I forgot to turn this over. My bad. <laughs> I'm like, this sounds familiar. Brothers and sisters, if we could see it, we're always in the brink of disaster and death because of our adversary, the devil, because he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy us. You have to know that. You have an enemy that's real, and his goal is to destroy you and me. No bars hold. That's his goal, okay? So at all times, we should be a praying people, but the Lord often delays the answers of our problems of crisis so that we will recognize how much we really do need him. God is not limited by the prayers of his people. He's not. But he works through our prayers to teach us to totally depend upon him. He's not dependent upon us, but he works. He works so that we can learn that he is God and that we must depend upon him. That's what happened to me on that floor in that San Francisco hotel when I realized that I had nothing but God, nothing to give but God. So we go into our next. God's orchestrates all things according to his timeline. Since God is almighty, he can easily remove the most powerful and proud human leaders when it is time to do so. You see it. You see it happening. Power just corrupts. You see it every day. Power corrupts, and so was true with Herod. In the third part of this morning's passage, verses 20 to 23, God displays his power in the death of Herod Agrippa I. This death is nothing like the passing of the Apostle James, and it should remind us that evil will flourish until God decrees that it ends. It will flourish, but God has a decree that it will end. In Herod's case, it would end shortly after James stepped into glory. Peter's escape infuriated Herod, and although his guards bore no responsibility for it, he had them executed anyway. Evil, cruel, and bloodthirsty are apt descriptions of all the Herods. Like I said before, these people were evil. His grandfather, Herod the Great, had ordered the murder of the innocents when Jesus was born. One of his cousins, Herod Antipas, was involved in Jesus' murder, and now this one has had James killed. The reputation of all the Herods, like I said, they went before them. It remains unclear exactly why, but the cities of Tyre and Sidon had fallen out of favor with this Herod, so he cut off their food supply. In order to escape Herod's wrath and regain, in order to escape and regain their access to the needed food, the leaders of the two cities made a pact with Herod through Blastus, his chief of staff. On the day the pact was to be ratified, Herod ent entered the amphitheater. Now, as we read this stuff, we just, I'm that guy that when I'm reading and I'm hearing certain things, I love to imagine what's happening. I'm always throwing things into the Bible. I know I'm not supposed to, but I do. I just kind of imagine what's taking place as these things are happening. And here, we're told by Josephus, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver, Okay, just imagine this guy walking into the stadium. He puts on a garment made wholly of silver 
and the contextual truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflections of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner. It was brilliant, in other words. The sun shining upon it, he just looked brilliant. And with, the, and with that, Herod's moment had come. It should surprise no one because no one will ever get away. I'm sorry, in Acts 12, 21 to 22, Luke tells us that when Herod began to speak, the people shouted the voice of a God and not of a man. Now listen once more to Josephus. He did neither rebuke them, that is Herod. He did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And with that, Herod's moment had come. It should surprise no one because no one will ever get away with taking God's glory for himself. No one takes God's glory from him. In Isaiah 42, verses 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to, to graven images. And, and chapter 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned in my glory I will not give to another? God is not kidding. His glory is his, and you are not going to try to take it away from him. Acts 12, verses 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Okay, it's only fair to say, I may cover this later, that he didn't, like, die right there and then, okay? It took a few days, all right? And we'll, we'll get into why. Where did the worms come from? Eaten by worms. What does that mean? Some believe that Herod had a, had a skin disorder that literally attracted tiny worms to his body where they rapidly multiplied and consumed his flesh. Nasty. But it seemed more likely that he had been suffering with a tapeworm. The resulting cyst would eventually burst and cause a slow and agonizing death. In any case, Josephus says that Herod lived for five days, during which time he suffered terrible pain. Herod knew enough about God that he should have, been, that he should have seen God's hand in Peter's deliverance and realized that he was fighting against God. He had seen enough. He knew. He knew the truth. He should have remembered the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God humbled for his pride. But instead, Herod foolishly accepted the adulation of these people that were under his power. Since he did not give God the glory, God used a lowly tapeworm to bring down this humanly power, powerful and proud man. His sins were great, but the greatest of all was his last, taking God's glory for himself. Oh, how we need to understand that to seek God's glory for ourselves is to make war against him. Those are harsh words. To seek God's glory for ourselves, we are declaring war against God, whether we realize it or not. It is to commit eternal, eternal suicide. Herod's glory was short-lived and his misery is eternal. Thus, we come to the third lesson. In today's text, 
When the time is right, God will use his power to remove every vain, every proud, every evil human that comes in opposition to him. That was the third, I should say. And now the fourth. It's found in Acts 12, chapter, uh, verse 24 through 25. The gospel will go forth and his church will continue to grow until it is complete and Jesus comes for us. God's gospel cannot be stopped. Can't stop that. You just can't. Since God is almighty, his gospel cannot be stopped. Luke closes this section by telling us how, how the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied and then mentions the return of Saul, Barnabas, and John Mark to Antioch. This sets the stage for the expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles that comprises the rest of Acts. Herod and the Jews opposed God's Savior and came under his judgment. The apostles and early church suffered much. Many died violent deaths, but the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. God rewarded them abundantly and eternally in heaven. So in conclusion, we've seen God's power on display in four different ways here in, the Acts, of in Acts 12 this morning. In verses 1 through 5, the apostle James was murdered by Herod. The apostle Peter was imprisoned by Herod. God allowed and orchestrated both events. Then in verse 6 through 19, God sent one of his holy angels to set Peter free from prison. Verse 20 to 23, God took Herod's life from him. In verses 24 to 25, God saw to it that the word of the Lord continued to be to grow and to multiply. Let me suggest to you that there are three reasons, three lessons we can learn from all of this, three things we can take with us. First, God displays his power in our lives whether we live or whether we die. It is God's power being displayed. Okay, James died, Peter lived. God's power in display. Romans 14, 7 through 8. For not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if, I li if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Second, God displays his power in this world when he removes evil leaders from authority. We know that all rulers, good or evil, have been put in place by God for his purposes. I know you fight against this, but it's true. God puts whomever he wills in power. And sometimes it irks us, doesn't it? It's like, God, how could you let him win? You know, no. God's purpose is being fulfilled. And we know that no human ruler is either omnipotent or eternal. Romans 13, verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Don't forget that. There's no authority except from God. And the one who's in office, the ones that you dislike, they have been put there by God for whatever reason. Hopefully it's to change our hearts, right? Um, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Herods, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Husseins, are all subjects of God's righteous judgment. They're going to get theirs. And these guys that I mentioned, well, I'm not happy about it, but you know. <laughs> Third, God displays his awesome power whenever the gospel goes out and another soul comes to the saving faith in Christ. 
Just listen to some of what he has already done in, in books of Act, book of Acts. So then those who have received, uh, verse 41 in chapter 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Do you see a pattern? You can't stop that. God's church is going to keep advancing no matter what you see going on. Until his return, we march on. It presses on. Uh, verse 11, uh, chap um, verse 21, I mean chapter 11, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believe turned to the Lord. And so it went on and on, and so it goes, and so it shall until the church is complete and the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes to take us home. As we move on into Acts 13, we'll see that God's power to build the church is only beginning. Saul of Tarsus will become the Apostle Paul, and the gospel will begin to go out to the whole world. May God display his power in our lives and in this church, but never for our glory, but for his. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us how to pray in, this, in days like this. We don't always know, need to know what to pray for, but we do desperately need to pray, Lord. We need to pray for each other. We pray for our friends, to pray, for, to pray about the dangers that beset us as a nation and as a world, as a people. Lord, Help us just to open our hearts and to be honest before you. For we know that in the mystery of prayer, a mystery that none of us can fathom, something is happening that makes possible the activity of your spirit to work in unusual ways, ways that otherwise would never happen. Make us that kind of dependent people, ones who are desperate for you always. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.